Hi, and welcome to the Luminaries In and Out of Sect podcast, a show about the moon and how astrologers embody and relate to it. My name is S.P. Hall, and I'm your host. In today's episode on the Aries moon as the sect light, I speak with the astrologer Tony of the Woods. We talk about the placement of his moon on the midheaven in the 10th whole sign house, but we also talk about many other things, such as the challenges of having the moon in a hot, dry sign, Druidism and Oam, the moon's role in Islam, the story of Jason and Medea and the Golden Fleece, the philosophy of Alfred Whitehead, the difference between fate and destiny, and lunar mansions and their remedies. As always, if you enjoy the work that I'm doing, please contribute to the podcast's sustainability by becoming a supporting member or offering a one-time donation on my website. There, you can also find information on my services. I'm offering natal and horary consultations on a donation basis as well as transcription, captioning, and audio editing. Thanks again to all those that have offered their generous support. I appreciate you. Now for my conversation with Tony. I hope you enjoy it. Please be sure to check out the links to his website and socials below, as well as links to some of the resources that we touch on in our conversation. All right, Tony, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so let's get into the conversation with you uh, giving us a brief introduction to yourself, your practice, your influences, teachers you've had, and and just how you think about astrology in general. Sure. Um, well, I uh, go by Tony. Uh, I use the handle Tony of the Woods, uh, something I just uh, came up with. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, I grew up in southern Indiana in like a working class family. Um, was always kind of very bookish. And uh, uh, then in high school, got deeply into um, like spirituality and occultism. Uh, kind of what started my journey. Um, that was back in around 2006, 2007. Um, also, first experienced astrology at its fullest around that time uh kind of getting full idea of what a chart is uh, although the funny thing is uh, my moon placement was what kind of turned me off around astrology at that time and we'll probably get into that a little bit as we explore <laughs> that and can history. you give us a a quick summary really quick like what about your moon placement sure well i always felt kind of like watery i guess like on the creative side emotional um and then when learning i might have an aries moon versus a pisces moon that just didn't feel right at the time mm. um despite the moon being so high in the, in the chart in the 10th house it just didn't feel like part of me um now after li having lived much more life i am definitely an aries moon in mm. a lot of ways um but i guess just at that time it's not it didn't adhere to my view of myself. I felt like a cancer rising, uh, which I am, or um, some of my water placements. Uh, and so without knowing and having like a specific birth time on a birth certificate, um, that just kind of held me back a little bit from studying astrology until several years later when I got more confirmation of the time and again, kind of lived more of life to where everything felt aligned a bit more. 
and then I got much more deeply into astrology. So, mm. yeah. And did, did you rectify your birth time with, with an astrologer, or were you able to get a birth certificate? Um, I got, I didn't get a birth certificate specifically, but I got had one of those, like, baby pillows that, that are made, like, right when, like, right around when the baby is born, mm-hmm. and that it said uh, 9.45 p.m., which does sound a bit rounded, so I would like to explore rectification a bit more in the future, but it does closely match what my mom said, mm-hmm. and um, her memory has been good for my two sisters as well, yeah. so um, I, I felt pretty good about that after finding that pillow, and um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Um, I got my birth certificate to, like, confirm my birth time, and my mom was off by, like, 20 minutes something like that so it didn't it wasn't uh any major change like my ascendant degree changed by a few degrees but other than that like you know she moms know you know like she was yeah. <laughs> some my mom has a heavy virgo placement she's a virgo rising with oh, so you, virgo. so your mom <laughs> definitely knows your mom definitely knows cool yeah so you learned your moon placement you had some uh friction around that so let's get back into to that. Where did you kind of go from there? Yeah, so uh, in my sort of spiritual exploration, that kind of came to the fore. And while astrology was set aside, I was still very much so into like occultism and esotericism uh, and all sorts of religious traditions. I sort of just soaked it up, um, ended up going to college for linguistics, um, mm. which is interesting because astrology is often analogized to learning a language. Mm. Um, which definitely feels right for me and yeah over those I guess 15 years I was just absorbing a a lot of the same symbolism that is used in astrology like through tarot and various uh, occult traditions I guess druidry is one that I've always been drawn to Mm. Um, uh, so by the time I fully got to like I guess catching the astrology bug in 2021 I was sort of ahead where I had um, a lot of experience with the symbolism of the planets and the sort of philosophy and history associated with the tradition. Um, so it was just more of filling in the technique and uh, getting into practicing more so. So yeah, that's kind of been my experience with uh, astrology. Um, and as far as like my personal philosophy goes, it sort of developed along that same timeline. It's It's evolved over the years but it's definitely taken a kind of animistic relational approach, which is becoming more and more popular these days, which is great to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically seeing everything uh, as alive and as a person, um, as a way of interacting with the world, um, but also letting the world be what it is and experiencing that like a phenomenological, phenomenological <laughs> approach mm-hmm. um, to where uh, in the past I would might look at the moon for example and think oh well what does that mean or um is it just a rock floating in the sky and it's been sort of assigned meanings by human cultures um or or or, like what is going on with it Uh, and now i feel a lot more comfortable with staring at the moon and letting it be letting her be what she is (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um having giving legitimacy to the feelings and thoughts caused within me but when interacting with thinking about looking at the moon um, mm-hmm. or any other quote-unquote object or being so yeah uh, kind of granting legitimacy to every experience every moment and uh, allowing mm-hmm. the meaning to unfold 
from that interaction is something that's kind of grown more and more for me and like letting that intellectual questioning take a backseat to experience mm. I'm still there <laughs> obviously I have a pretty well a, a conflicted mercury I guess but one mm. that loves digging in and like thinking deeply about things um, but yeah like letting that experience kind of come to the fore uh, is important and kind of connected to that is um, I, I'm very much so a neophyte but I've been very interested since I've learned about it is um, process philosophy um, that was kind of started by Alfred Whitehead um, okay. kind of a not a, one of the most popular um, philosoph philosophical approaches because it delved deeply into the metaphysical side of things which sort of mm. went out of popularity in the English-speaking world for, mm, for quite yeah. a while <laughs> but he he kind of devised the whole metaphysical system of, of moments basically where the I guess the smallest particles are um, essentially moments of experience uh, and it, it gets more complicated than that and in a very interesting way that brings in like um, Platonism and re-envisioning what like the, the ideal forms or archetypes are and how they interact with like human experience mm -hmm. but uh, yeah it's a very interesting system and I've kind of been learning more and more about and incorporating more into my thought um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now philosophically, and um, we could touch on more on the spirituality side of things uh, later or whenever you think is appropriate too. Yeah, that'd yeah. be that'd be wonderful. Yeah, I love that. I just wanted to say you kind of talked about um, coming into astrology not late, but a little bit later, um, and how things that you learned before that were of service to your learnings in astrology or being an astrologer and I just wanted to echo that because I studied philosophy in college um, and I feel like that's really prepared me well uh, to think about the foundations of astrology because they're philosophical they're rooted in philosophical thought and um, and so having a knowledge of Plato and Aristotle and you know, the way that ideas evolved over time, the history of philosophy has really served me to better understand astrology and its changes over time. And um, yeah, one of the things I'm not, I'm not actually that familiar with, with Whitehead, but I uh, know of the, the kind of schism that you're talking about in uh, the, the English speaking world compared to what's, you know, analytic philosophy compared to continental philosophy, the phenomenological approach uh, on the continent of Europe that, that you're describing. And um, I do think that those questions really are at the forefront of my mind um, when thinking about the astrological system or just like doing the more technical things with astrology. And we don't need to get super into that, but I just wanted to put that forward as like everything that you do in life can help you to get to where you want to go or where you're headed. You know, it's kind of like there are diversions, but there are no diversions, that kind of idea. Uh, and so I kind of really appreciate you, you sharing that a little bit about your studies and your spiritual evolution your philosophical changes that you've made over time. I feel like that really speaks to that. Yeah. And, uh, that's also something that's taken me a while to integrate to is mm -hmm. um, allowing that 
like the, all of my previous experience to inform where I'm at now. Uh, but the more and more I do it, the more I feel in tune, I guess, with what's going on, where I'm at in my path, I suppose. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so yeah, can you share a bit about how we know each other? I will say that we we know each other from Twitter and um, I think we've both kind of like, I've appreciated the support that you've given uh, this podcast and the support that you've given through like engaging with my questions and my kind of thoughts that I've put out there uh, into the interwebs. But I don't know if you have any additional things that you'd like to share uh, about that. We'd love to hear if so. Yeah, uh, through Twitter is is how we got to know each other. Like you said, um, I had seen that you were posting a lot of material on branches of astrology that I'm also interested in, mm -hmm. uh, traditional, broadly, and then Hellenistic. Um, I, I also noticed you post uh, stuff about medieval philosophy, whether the Islamic side of things or um, later European um, and so that that's also been my main focus. And I, I realize I didn't answer the question about astrology practice. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's those are the fields that I I like. But I also like a lot of people bring in stuff from the modern astrology. Um, I've uh, really got started again, like a lot of people with the astrology podcast and Chris mm -hmm. Brennan. Um, that's uh, his his synthesis that he's kind of putting forward, um, and also just bringing in lots of guests from many strains of astrology has been influential for me mm -hmm. um, I haven't had like uh, direct teachers I've used like tons of books and podcasts and talks and um, that's also something that caused me to get started a bit more slowly like interacting on social media and so mm -hmm. forth just um, not wanting to uh, present the wrong information or anything considered that I've started pretty recently in uh, late 2021 Mm -hmm. um, but as I've interacted with other astrologers and learned more, I've kind of gotten more confident. I still sort of present myself as a student and yeah. definitely in the practicing stage. But I also find it's it's good when people are able to share and their learnings as they go. And that's what mm -hmm. I've been focusing on. So, um, yeah, again, as far as teachers, like uh, material from like Demetra George has been huge. Um, several others I really like the uh, Benjamin Dykes translations as well um, mm -hmm. have those like stacked around me <laughs> a lot of nice. times um, but yeah um, didn't have much more to say on those um, would you like me to expand on no I just wanted to say um, I know that a lot of people are intimidated by Twitter but I will say that I think if you frame yourself as someone that's learning like you and I have because I also consider myself still like a student like not even really a year into being a student of astrology. So I think that, you know, if you frame yourself in a certain way and you come with some like humility and a desire to actually converse and learn, that can go a long way. Um, of course, there are people who are bad faith actors or are unkind, you know, that just happens, but um, everyone's free, free to use the block button if they, if they want to. Um, I've not done it a ton, but I've, of course, done it uh, a few times because some weirdness can go on. It's just, it's okay to have boundaries. But I also want to uh, just give a shout out to like 
the importance of actually practicing the things that you're learning. You know, like I've been influenced by Demetrius books as well, and uh, I've used them on my own chart, but it's really taken my knowledge and my studies to a new level by doing trades with other student astrologers or professional astrologers. And so um, I think the catalyst for having you on the podcast is we, you know, you were looking to to do trades with other folks and I was in the same boat. I had done a few trades at that point. And so I reached out to you and um, yeah, we were able to kind of apply those techniques to another person's chart and get some feedback. And um, I think that that's a really powerful tool uh, for relatively new students of astrology. And so I definitely encourage people like, you know, develop some relationships with people and, and try to try to work with others um, in a reciprocal way so that you can help each other kind of like build your knowledge and build your skills. Um, so just wanted to give a shout out to that uh, before I before I forget. Oh, yeah, I would definitely second that. I mean, uh, social media might not be for everyone because it's addictive tendencies and a lot of the negativity that's sort mm -hmm. of wrapped up into it. but. Uh, if you are a person who is, uh, thinks that they can withstand those, um, it's, it's a great opportunity to sort of um, kind of have that immersion experience um, that I've mm -hmm. heard a few people talk about that applies to le learning a language, um, but astrology as well. The more you can um, kind of interact with people who speak the same language, in this case, um, the astrological, the uh, language of astrological symbolism, uh, like the more it can kind of become ingrained. Um, at the same time, you sort of have to have a filter of knowing who are your reliable sources within right. that and who you might want to um, kind of, you know, keep an arm's length. And, and so kind of having that almost like, I guess I've been in uh, branding quite a bit in mm -hmm. my sort of, I guess, professional experience. Um, and so whether or not I sit down and make a branding plan, I sort of think that way. Mm -hmm. um, so even like with my, at that point, like sort of fun astrological social media accounts, in the back of my mind I had like okay what's the what's my approach and like my brand and what am I presenting um what what legitimacy do I bring to what I'm presenting and what I'm, what am I consuming and who am I interacting with uh, not necessarily to the most manipulative extent that that could be but kind of mm -hmm. having that in mind is like yeah it's cool to hang out with people but like what is my goal here and mm -hmm. that has helped me kind of keep a bit more grounded and, and not like just uh, melt all over Twitter and yeah. whatnot. Uh, yeah. But yeah, and as far as the trades go, I'd recommend that for anyone who is like getting into astrology. I wish I had done it a little earlier too, uh, because mm -hmm. I feel like I had enough like base level knowledge for like many, many months before I started doing trades. Um, but that knowledge never really became activated until I started really doing readings. Mm -hmm. um, it felt intimidating and still does, um, but uh, I found I knew a lot more than I thought that I did, and I had a lot more to offer other people than I thought I did, and mm -hmm. I feel like I've kind of grown leaps and bounds these last few months where I've done like at least one reading a week, either a trade or um, I'm offering readings, uh, like my books are open <laughs> mm -hmm. to uh, um, for like a kind of like a sliding scale uh, since I'm a student, but yeah, highly mm -hmm. recommend that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So uh, moving on a little bit, um, when you think back to your childhood, what was your relationship to the moon at that time? 
And if maybe that's not super clear, like what's one memory maybe that comes to mind um, from that time in relation to the moon? Uh, every time I think about this question, I get like uh, kind of the tingles. It's interesting. Mm, I, uh, I, I never had like some sort of crazy experience with the moon, but mm-hmm. it, it was always like this mysterious figure, like um, always changing both like its moon phase and its shape, but also it, t- at that time with my very poor astronomical knowledge, mm. I, I, I could never really predict when it would be where in the sky. Like sometimes it would be up in the day and sometimes it would be like high at night. And um, uh, that just felt like like a constantly shifting background. And then when I would look at the moon, I, I always remember like being fascinated by the splotches, like the dark patches, mm. like the um i'm sure i'm embarrassing myself i don't know like the terminology of the those, those craters yeah but uh, I, I i noticed that they, they never seem to be in the same place that like uh, it, it always seemed to be sort of shift shifting or at least my kind of experience of it and mm-hmm. to me they almost looked like shadow continents uh, mm-hmm. kind of reflecting uh like the, the various continents you would see on the globe here i'm just can i remember. can i jump in really quickly yeah, please, just because like uh Something that I really like love actually is if you go on Google Earth and you zoom out all the way, uh, you'll give be you'll be given options to like explore other planets, oh, wow. which I think is super cool. And you can go and look at the moon, and you can see like all of the different craters and stuff, and like they have all these cool names like the Sea of Tranquility and like. I can't think of any of the other names, but they're just like these super cool, like kind of epic names for these parts of the moon. And you can do this with other things. Like I think you can do it with Vesta. Um, you can do it with different planets and stuff like that. Maybe perhaps like the moons of Jupiter, because I know that Jupiter has like a ton of moons. Um, super, super cool. Uh, I didn't realize that I was, I don't know why I was like messing around on Google Earth one day and figured it out that you could like go to another planet on Google Earth. But um yeah, you just reminded me of that, and I was like really excited when I figured it out. I love that. I wrote it, I wrote it down to like do, as soon as we hang up, I think I'm gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, so just like the mystery of it. Um, one specific memory was actually a lunar eclipse uh, that mm. happened. I I don't know if I'm smushing together memories, although that's kind of a lunar thing. Very lunar thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do remember. Uh, we were like fishing at night, me and my then stepdad. Um, and it's like catfishing, which I, I think is done more at night. Not my thing, but uh, you know, uh, at that time I was doing that. <laughs> and I remember there was a lunar eclipse, and and uh, we kind of stopped to watch it as it got exact. And of course, the moon turned like blood red, and it's almost like a. It has this feeling of like awe, where it's like really mm-hmm. cool, but almost like. I, I get why people are afraid of eclipses because at, at the moment it just feels very eerie. And this mm-hmm. is just a lunar eclipse, let alone a solar eclipse. Um, I, I just remember that being very uh, kind of impactful at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't explain why, but uh, it, it seemed significant. Mm-hmm. I'm getting the image of my mind of like you and your stepdad. I don't know. You're in a. I don't know if you were in a boat, but it feels like a very lunar thing to kind of like paint this picture, like in the canoe on the on the lake or on the pond or something with like the moon overhead at night turning like slowly being eclipsed and turning red it feels very 
picturesque very kind of um yeah there's a there's a kind of not to use the word epic again but there's a kind of like a cinematic quality to it almost yeah that's very cool yeah i think it was on the shore but i mean i've done canoeing and we had rowboats and stuff and Mm -hmm. um yeah and like there's also a tension there too because my relationship with my stepdad was uh complicated Mm. and had very like martian intense like anger moments as well yeah. uh, so I, I think it is a good kind of encapsulation overall of my moon experience of uh, maybe mixing memories together confusion uh, mm. but also like this kind of picturesque and um, kind of c- combined with an outdoors experience mm. uh, yeah it's just uh that's that's kind of one of the images that came to mind <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, I hope that we can kind of delve more into those emotional dynamics and kind of like how that uh, shows up astrologically a bit in your chart too. Because I do think there's like, yeah, there's a lot going on in your chart, especially with the moon, because she's right on the MC. She's ruling your ascendant, um, aspecting so many planets in your chart. And so, yeah, I think that there's like a lot of richness there to explore. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I took I took some notes on that. <laughs> wonderful. Um, so what does the moon mean for you today? And why do you think it's important that we focus on the moon uh, when we're talking about astrology? Sure. Uh, well, I do like a lot of the traditional um, descriptions of the moon, of it uh, being the body that's closest to the earth and kind of reflecting that, the, the light of the spirit of the sun, mm-hmm. um, but uh, kind of bringing it to the earthly level embodying it. Mm. Um, and I kind of just uh, take that sort of basic philosophical idea and sort of run with it. And I do like like the cyclical nature and how it's tied in with the tides. And it's it's really a good entry way too into the astrology. I mm. find that as I do more readings, I like to start with the like the moon phase. It's very you can look up in the sky and see it, and everyone has an experience of it, whether or not they've thought about astrology or astronomy beyond that. Um, so it's kind of a, a good sort of starter, I think. And at the same time, the depth of the moon, like you could stay talking about the moon for multiple readings or your entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel that. Uh, and as far as like my personal kind of connection with the moon today, um, I don't have like a specific lunar practice, uh, but I do uh, as much as I can do it like a daily planetary prayer. Mm-hmm. And I've used different prayers for this. And um, I, I found that the simplest that I keep it, the better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, otherwise, it can be like a pain to stick to it. Um, but right. for sure, on Mondays, I try to get a prayer out, light a candle and incense. Um, I've used the Orphic hymns, and those are good. Um, mm-hmm. One of these days, I'd like to write my own, because uh, I, mm-hmm. I like that experience. Yeah. Um, but that has been, I think that is really what got me into astrology, actually. Side note is, I started doing the planetary prayers maybe like in 2018, okay. on and off. And then a few years later, is when I got into astrology, and I, I just feel like the energy of that, or there's some sort of connection or momentum being established that then uh, once that I sort of delved a little bit into astrology, I get this got sucked fully in. Mm, that's really interesting. If And if you kind of touched on this already, forgive me, but how did you end up saying the, or doing the planetary prayers 
uh, without being into astrology already, because I feel like I've moved more into like uh, planetary practices and like saying Orphic hymns, like as a result of learning a bit about astrology and my astrology journey. So I'm really curious how you ended up in that place. Sure. Uh, it was part of my journey of trying to move away from like armchair occultism, which mm. can definitely be my tendency since high school. Uh, I have a strong Scorpio and like all of the kind of secrecy associated with Scorpio and I have some other placements that, that account for that. Um, those have kind of kept me from really diving deeply. And mm. uh, over the years, uh, I've been wanting to like break into practice more so and, and in different traditions, but um, somewhere along the way, I found the recommendation to do planetary prayers just because of how central the planets are, especially to um, some like Western quote unquote forms of like occultism, esotericism, mm. spirituality. Uh, and like I said, I've, I've had a connection with the planets, even without like an astrological practice. Um, like some of the other practices involved like various forms of meditation and like divination, like tarot, um, mm-hmm. or, or the, the Oum, which is like a druidry, um, a druid form of uh, sort of um, Yeah. But yeah, like, like the prayers just seemed like a good way to connect to like a set of energies or forces or archetypes that is like a, a consistent system. There's seven that sort of represent everything within our experience, mm-hmm. which felt kind of complete without like an oversimplification, which sometimes like a, a singular focus on the divine can feel like. Mm-hmm. I have a complicated relationship with like monotheism versus polytheism. Uh, yeah, the, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, like I well, I guess to go back a little bit then. By that I mean I also have a complicated relationship, you know. Yeah, cool. Uh, well, I guess just to give a quick uh, overview on that, uh, from like some point in my childhood up until high school, I had become like Protestant Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, of like my grandmother took me and my sisters to church, and I decided to get more involved with that myself. Um, but I quickly burned out on that where I didn't mm. feel like I was getting enough spirituality from it. I could see some other people would like getting really intensely involved in like prayer and like worship singing and having what looked to be intense experiences, which I just didn't get. Mm. Um, and so that and then my interest in like occultism, which is a no no, and then uh, my sexuality, which I'm like a gay male. Uh, mm. I like sort of grew into that and accepted that for myself. Uh, all those things sort of kind of pulled me away from the mainstream Christianity. And yeah. so I, I left that. And then in high school, up until my 20s, I was sort of in like a searching phase and learning many religions and spiritual traditions and kind of research into occultism. And then, uh, but I never really like adhere to anything i do remember doing some sort of prayer to the moon but in like a very idiosyncratic way of like choosing like a some sort of moon god like a male moon figure Mm. Uh, and uh, but that never really went anywhere but that is a lunar thing so (laughs) it's definitely um, relevant Uh, but yeah then into my 20s still interested in many things um, but I did kind of go more, I basically became 
Muslim as sort of <laughs> one of my spiritual traditions, I guess. <laughs> uh, and uh, that too, I came about it in a very idiosyncratic way, <laughs> for sure. And it's like my own experience. I'm definitely not like a, I guess you could say standard <laughs> Muslim, but I do feel a lot mm -hmm. of nourishment from the tradition and the structure of the prayers and whatnot uh, really felt good. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, I got into like the animism and druidry as different um, traditions. Uh, so kind of exploring all of that has been the experience since my 20s. Um, and now coming to astrology, I feel like it's kind of tying everything together because uh, astrology has always been a big part of the Muslim world mm -hmm. uh, and has, has, has always been a part of the Western sort of occult tradition, which includes um, Druidry uh, and now animism as it kind of, uh, as the Western quote unquote, again, <laughs> tradition sort of makes contact again with the rest of the world on a more equal basis is when I, I feel like those kind of animistic worldviews are kind of becoming more um, explored and, mm -hmm. and so yeah astrology I feel like kind of ties all those together nicely yeah yeah thanks so much for explaining that I think one of the one thing I want to say really quickly about Elam is I wanted to give a shout out quickly to uh, the Irish pagan school that's how I learned about Elam I have Irish heritage and so I've been particularly interested in pre-Christian Irish spirituality as far as that's accessible it's kind of difficult because that goes back pretty far in history but uh yeah I took their like introduction to Irish magic or something like that their their class and I'll link that in the show notes but they touch on Owen a little bit there um and the other thing I wanted to say is like I think since our trade I've been thinking about our conversation therein about uh you and Islam and uh just thinking about how important the moon is in Islam. Um, just if you look at flags for like largely Muslim countries, there's like always a, a, like a crescent moon, maybe not always, but several countries have crescent moons on their, on their flags. And I just think that's really interesting. And um, I don't know if you could touch on at all, like the importance of the moon in, uh, in Islam if there is a real emphasis on it uh, religiously, but I'm really interested in that. Sure. Um, well, I can touch on it, although uh, I'll just say what my experience is and what my knowledge is. Cool. Uh, one thing for sure is that the Islam or the uh, Muslims use a lunar calendar for mm. the reckoning of like various uh, religious holidays, um, such as Ramadan. Uh, and uh, what's interesting is a lot of time, a lot of people use a calculated timing for that, um, but the tradition that I'm in specifically uh, is required that someone sees the first sliver of the crescent of the moon, and that is the, then the beginning of the lunar month. Mm. Uh, so uh, there's always a kind of question, especially around like like when Ramadan begins, is like, oh, did they see the moon or not, and whether it's going to be within like a one to three day range. Mm -hmm. And there's like a whole list of criteria. And so for sure, that's a, a big part of um, the tradition. Uh, another thing that's interesting too, like another calendrical thing, is that a lot of times if you get a like a Muslim calendar, printed calendar, it will list when the moon is in Scorpio as mm. a specific time to sort of like not do anything. Wow. Uh, 
and now being an astrologer, I, I realized that the moon is in detriment in Scorpio and and like there are some other things like the via combusta where the moon is just uncomfortable there. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's no other astrological thing really mentioned. <laughs> it's just um, uh, I think it would be in Hamar in the Prab is like uh, and that translates to moon and Scorpio. I had to ask what that meant. <laughs> wow. So that's just an interesting little anecdote. That's uh, so interesting. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure there's a lot more. Like there's a lot to there's like a whole systems of like spiritual astrology, like um, from Ibn Arabi in particular, uh, that I want to delve a little deeper into myself. But uh, yeah, like the moon has always been important, uh, and like astrologically, a lot of times Islam as a religion has been equated with the planet Venus um, mm. for a lot of reasons. And then, like the holiest day being Friday, um, mm. versus like the solar Christian Sunday and uh, the Jewish Sabbath uh, associated with Saturn mm -hmm. uh, on Saturday, and like that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. But the moon is very close to like the Muslim experience, um, just because of that experiential calendar. Like it's not just Ramadan; it's every month is is set by the moon sighting, mm. um, and then you'll always have certain holidays all always around the same moon phase uh, and that that calendar isn't tied to the solar calendar so it actually moves backwards 11 days every year um, okay. so there's like a long cycle where Ramadan will be in summer for many many years and then it will slowly go back into spring and then the winter uh, mm -hmm. so that's interesting yeah that's super interesting cool thanks for explaining that so what does the sign of Aries mean to you and in addition to that, um, how do considerations of myth play into your understanding and experience of both the moon and the sign of Aries? Sure. So with Aries kind of being the cardinal fire sign, and it's really the first uh, in the series, it, it, to me, I mean, it just has that like burst of energy, that beginning feeling. Um, and to me, Aries is the most... I guess easy to understand the sign. Maybe that's because of my moon placement, but like that feeling of like having that sudden beginning or like explosion of energy, uh, it just um, kind of makes a lot of sense to me. And so mm -hmm. it's like fast, quick to start, or like a, the image of a spring is one that I like where it's, it's like mm -hmm. compressed and then it bursts open and like it, the energy is then quickly expended and then it needs to be sort of like compressed back down before it can then burst again and that's definitely how it feels um, where it's like I can like have a lot of energy and be excited and start a project uh, and then uh, I need to kind of regenerate that excitement or else it might um, jump to something else it definitely has like that jumping from starting ideas to starting another idea to starting another idea mm -hmm. it's like the the cardinal of cardinal or the the most tropical of the tropical signs is, right. is how it feels to me at least. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally, totally get that. Um, yes. And I think even with um, Aries falling in like the fifth house in my chart, uh, like going into doing this podcast, I was very much like, I very much had to like set goals of what I wanted to, like what success would look like uh, so that I felt like I would follow through because it felt like a big, undertaking like a big deal for me to undertake this project and so I was like I want to at least complete 
the year. Like I want to complete the whole kind of cycle so that I do every moon sign so that like it wasn't like I'm going to start and then I get distracted and I'll move on to something, another idea. So I can even kind of get that in my own, in my own chart. And I have Mars in my first house. And so I kind of, I feel like um, Mars ruling the fifth that kind of gets brought into um, maybe a bit more of like my embodiment or my identity, this kind of like creative style or what have you. So yeah, I definitely relate to that. Do you, did you have anything else that you wanted to share about Aries? Um, not in general. I think more will come in when we bring in the moon placement cool. part specifically. So what does it mean for you for the moon to be in Aries? And are you comfortable sharing where that falls in your chart and how that impacts your experience of your moon? Uh, sure. Yeah. My moon is in the 10th house, uh, pretty closely conjunct the MC. Um, the moon is at three degrees Aries and my MC is at four degrees. So it's right after that angular position but it's still in that place where it's uh kind of goaded or or still closely pretty closely conjunct yeah uh, and yeah it's it's squaring jupiter and then saturn neptune venus and uranus mm. <laughs> uh, kind of in, including cancer and capricorn and we can talk about those a little bit uh, as we kind of come to that yeah um, totally but yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there with the moon, mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, and the moon also rules my ascendant and is my sec light because um, I'm a night chart. So right. um, definitely lunar person, really highlighting that Aries placement a lot, for sure. And what that means to me and my experience, like a lot of the things that we associate with Aries, uh, both good and bad, I feel like I have experienced or I embody in a lot of ways. Um, from like that, like, again, like energy bursting sort of feel um, to even like having that quick flare of temper where it's mm. like, uh, especially with like the people I'm closest with uh, might experience this more so than just like the general public mm. um, for better or worse, um, either on their behalf or unfortunately <laughs> to them at my worst moments. Uh, yeah. it, I can kind of get that like, Kind of burst of like frustration or irritability or even anger but then it, it does go away quickly um like you would expect from like an aries placement versus like that lingering um scorpionic kind of grudge like anger that can mm -hmm. uh, like i'm not completely empty of i do have a lot of scorpio placements but just kind of like on a day-to-day -day -day basis like the, the changing of emotions is quick and fast and intense um, whether it be anger, which is more kind of archetypically maybe Aries, um, but any emotion really uh, tends to kind of peak and go and wave and be really intense, mm -hmm. um, almost unbearable at times. Uh, yeah. But then it then it goes away and changes to something else very quickly. So like on the emotional level, there's that. And mm -hmm. then on the physical level, um, like especially even in like the older texts, you'll see like Aries be like ruddy or red in the face. Um, and that's definitely like you can't see me right now because it's a podcast, <laughs> but my face is a bit flushed. Um, and I even have like slightly reddishness to my like facial hair, especially when the sun is hitting it. So that's definitely kind of like on the nose for like a moon and Aries placement. And for those listening, uh, Tony's also wearing a red shirt. So it's like red yellow shirt. So it's kind of like also accentuating the the redness of his skin as well. So it feels, it feels very fitting. Yeah. And then 
like going a little further, there is like that, like Aries is the ram, right? So there can be that like headbutting energy sometimes where it's like, I feel like I'm at odds with someone. It can be, mm. it can like escalate and feel intense. I don't want to paint myself in a terrible light, <laughs> but mm. um, you know, there's good uh, uses of that energy and more uh, negative uses like with any. Um, right. And then there's definitely like that, like independence, freedom kind of associations mm-hmm. um, are there uh, for me as well, like politically and even just personally, where uh, I like to be able to do things my own way. And um, I don't want to be isolated, but a lot of times uh, when it comes to like working or projects, I'll, I'll feel a lot more comfortable working independently. Mm. Yeah. And that's just a few things. Another thing that's physical is like headaches associated mm. with Aries and I do get those often is mm. um, Aries um, I forget the term for the uh, medical astrology chart that refers to signs in different parts of the body but Aries is connected with the head yep. and That's fire like melas- melas- melasthesia something like yes that. something yeah. like that <laughs> yeah 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 so yeah definitely headaches especially associated with heat I found that like in the summer when it's really hot I'm not mm. hydrating. I can get headaches for sure. Um, anything else that I wanted to quickly mention? Yeah, I just want to quickly like just kind of emphasize the point that on this podcast, we're generally talking about the moon, but talking about the moon, I think for you is ever more important because the moon rules your ascendant. So it's anybody looking at their chart, like the planet that rules your ascendant is a planet that kind of represents you. So the condition of that is going to tell you something about your constitution, perhaps your character, perhaps your physical um, morphology, I think the word would be, like how your body is kind of constructed. Uh, And it's interesting because, and also like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like planets in the first house can kind of also speak to how the native embodies. Uh, And so like, Interestingly, uh, we both have angular moons. Um, Cancer plays an important part in both of our charts. So it's your first house. It's my eighth house. Um, my, I have a, a Sagittarius rising. And so Jupiter is in Cancer. Both of our Jupiters are in Cancer. Um, so there adds this kind of Cancerian element to, uh, or this Jupiterian element for you and this Cancerian element for me. Uh, and then there's also like the moon is in Sag in my first house. And so we both have these uh, fiery qualities. And so it's interesting fiery qualities with like our emotional nature and our embodiment perhaps. And so it's interesting um, thinking back to the first episode of this uh, podcast with, with Erin uh, Tech Shipley. And she talked about like the buoyancy of the Sagittarius moon and how like emotions just kind of a good thing about it is that things will come and go very quickly. And I think that there's resonance with that with, um, what you're talking about with your Aries moon, uh, this kind of cardinal nature of like fire and then just kind of the release of energy quickly. And so it's interesting to, to see that, um, that commonality. I think the thing that's obviously different is the mutable nature of the Sagittarius moon and the double bodied nature. So I think for myself, and I'm interested to hear about like the emotional quality that you maybe consistently experienced because I, I I think I can hold a lot of different emotions. And so there's things moving in different directions, which feels very mutable, feels very double-bodied, uh, you know, holding conflicting emotions at the same time. And 
finding some type of acknowledging the truth in that. Do you feel like for you, there is more of that kind of single-minded or single-focused emotion that's kind of, that comes and goes? Or what does that look like for you? Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's, there's like one single emotion. <laughs> it can switch, uh, but it's it's really kind of one at a time is how it feels. Mm. And there's like a rawness to it um, mm. where it's it's almost like, there's an uncomfortability just like the moon isn't super comfortable in Aries it's it's kind of peregrine um, mm-hmm. and while mine my moon uh, sees its triplicity ruler Jupiter and then like participating triplicity ruler of Saturn um, it doesn't see Mars its ruler although um, Mars is in Scorpio uh, which it rules so there's this lichen girdled quality where mm-hmm. um, the moon does have kind of a connection or a resonance with Mars, even though there's not an aspectual connection. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and side note, like learning astrology, I, I def- definitely delve deep into uh, all the, the the smaller connections just to um, kind of figure out my own chart. And I'm sure other people have that similar experience where it's like, wait, my moon seems screwed. <laughs> How can it possibly not be screwed? Uh-huh. Uh, but then like working to figure out what part of that is actually applicable um, versus mm-hmm. wishful thinking has been part of the journey but yeah just kind of summarizing that emotional experience uh, i would kind of re-emphasize that raw quality because it's something mm-hmm. that comes up with aries and it's definitely part of my experience where yes it's like bursts um but they can be like uncomfortable there's like a, a sharp edge to them um or just like a general uh kind of background discomfort sometimes Mm -hmm. even like physically or emotionally where um, the more I engage with the body and like sink into my emotional experience it it feels better Um, but sometimes that the intensity or the like the like the raw sort of uh, almost like survival (laughs) um, feeling of it where it's um, kind of touching upon that violence of Mars and Aries, mm-hmm. uh, where it almost feels like every moment is an act of violence in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to like really describe it more than that, but like th- there is a feeling to where like every moment is like bursting into existence, mm-hmm. and I can like feel that at times. Yeah, um, and there is like a discomfort there, like a a feeling of being on like the edge yeah um, sounds like a strong vitality but also with that comes real intensity and that intensity can be difficult to embody yeah for sure and then of course for me that's um tempered by like that square from saturn has like a cooling kind of frustrating uh influence and then the square to jupiter uh, which is in its exaltation, but still can have that like limiting quality um, as well. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, at, at like the most peak uh, moon and Aries moments, it is that raw intensity, vitality, kind of life force energy mm-hmm. um, for sure. Uh, and then to kind of bring in the myth a little bit, um, I did have one which um, have, I've explored a little bit. I'd like to get into it a bit more. Um, but a myth associated with Aries of Jason and the Golden Fleece. Sure. Uh, 
Do you mind if I ask one follow-up question about what you just talked about? Yeah. So other than presence, is there anything that you found that's really helped you navigate that feeling of intensity or that feeling of discomfort that comes with the, can come perhaps with the Aries moon? I don't know how much these other factors play into that, but um, I was wondering if you could maybe share some suggestions for some people who are listening right now and resonating with that experience and maybe need some help with the mitigation of it or kind of coming into more of a comfort with the discomfort. That makes sense. Yeah, sure. And um, yeah, this is something I'm just uh, uh, kind of exploring myself um, Mm -hmm. really just dip my toes in so far, but um, some things that, like just the beginning of have helped or exploring like this somatic meditation, mm. um, which is kind of a, uh, can be summarized as a, a more extensive version of like sinking into the body in the moment and exploring that as a form of meditation. Mm. Um, that, like my explorations there have helped quite a bit. Um, and that just like connecting with the breath. I mean, it's a very simple meditative like recommendation, um, yeah. but at the same time, it's, uh, really effective um, for me at least to a certain extent of telling myself to breathe more deeply bring more air into my lungs because sometimes I just get that like I guess breathless feeling mm. <laughs> which I associate with the kind of intensity or frustration um, or like irritability of the moon experience mm. um, so just slowing down <laughs> even in this podcast I've <laughs> I noticed I've had a, a tendency to kind of speed up uh, and so just kind of recognizing that and learning mm. to kind of put more, uh, I guess, red flags and bring in more tools uh, of when to use, uh, uh, I guess the red flags would be there to indicate when to use the tools. Mm. So, because um, sometimes with being having an Aries moon, I can really get involved in the moment mm. and not realize when I'm getting more escalated or uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. And so it's really been a process of kind of having that recognition and then um, bringing in the tools of breathing or sinking in right. uh, to my body. And at the same time, um, bringing in exercise or just physical movement. Uh, it's something that I've heard recommended for Aries placements a lot. And it's just very much so helpful um, for me, especially uh, like something like calisthenics or sprinting or lifting weights um have been really good um the more uh like long long distance running and whatnot uh, i can't handle (laughs) it just uh, i find it dreadful but those like the exercises that are like bursts of energy um have really aligned with my aries moon and have helped kind of expend some of that extra energy yeah it's so funny thinking about my um mars placement in sagittarius and uh, the difference again between these fire placements of, um, you know, like you're saying that you prefer sprinting to long distance sprinting for me is like the last thing I want to do, but like, I'll go run 10 miles, you know, and it's like almost like a spiritual experience, like bringing in that kind of those kind of like sag connotations of like the movement of my legs, literally Sagittarius represents like the thighs as like a spiritual practice almost very very interesting um cool wonderful yeah so did you want to 
move ahead now to talking about myth? Sure. Well, just a quick touch on uh, you brought in like Jupiter uh, having a big influence on like both of our charts. I will say that uh, kind of on reflecting on my chart a little more, I did notice that the, my moon placement is in the bounds of Jupiter. Mm. And then Jupiter is also the night triplicity lord of fire. And right. so uh, we have Jupiter exalted in Cancer, square, the moon with those placements. So there's kind of like a mixed mutual reception, which I feel like has been really supportive uh, mm -hmm. for my moon, um, uh, especially since the moon is like squaring Saturn, which is very problematic. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but for sure, like that Jupiter is, is very strong and helpful there. But yeah. Cool. But, to, but yeah, to switch into the myth, um, the one that I just really wanted to touch on is uh, Jason and the Golden Fleece. Um, the Golden Fleece being associated with the sacrifices to the god Ares, or mm. aka Mars. Uh, and um, I, I don't have a ton of experience with the myth, but it just but what I've learned of it has resonated quite a bit. I listened mm. to a podcast episode from uh, Holes to Heavens. Um, okay. by Adam Summer, and he spoke with uh, Jason Hawley, who is a great like mythological, relational astrologer. Yeah, really love Jason Hawley. <laughs> yeah, he's great. <laughs> his uh, um, one of his Norwalk present presentations on um, uh, kind of like being in the the consultation and like letting what comes up come come up, and and having that kind of again relational experience has been really influential for me mm -hmm. um but yeah he spoke with adam about um the myth of uh, jason and the golden fleece and how it's um one version of it at least is sort of a, a failed initiation mm. <laughs> um but for sure a lot of it resonated there's kind of like this feeling of an impossible mission um that was given to uh mm. jason that he then um strived step by step to accomplish supposedly they were he was supposed to do things that just couldn't be done like defeating these like fire breathing bulls and mm. um, planting dragon teeth into the ground and then sprouting and becoming warriors that he then had to defeat uh, but in the end how he completed his mission was with the help of uh, a lover essentially and that resonated a lot for me because of that uh, the seventh house activity that I have, I have um, Saturn and Capricorn in the seven, as well as Venus. Um, so like my uh, out of sect malefic and my insect benefic together in the same sign. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's been an interesting experience of like the worst and the best together. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, well, complicated by Venus being conjunct Uranus and Saturn being conjunct Neptune. So just like wrap your heads around that for a second <laughs> and then all of that square the moon and so like definitely relationship being brought into the lunar experience has been important for me and um uh, in some versions of the legend um jason like basically betrays um the his lover who helped him the sorceress yeah. um, and her name is medea correct it's medea yeah yep yeah I just uh, which, want to give really quickly just a shout out again to Jason Hawley because oh, yeah. he also talks about this in his eighth house lecture, uh, talking about he and, and the focus on that is on Medea rather than Jason. And it's just a great lecture. So I, I'll put that in the show notes, but I just wanted to make reference to that. Yeah, I, I would I would I'll, I want to check that out myself to 
still a little deeper. Um, I like that focus on Medea. It's, I think it's a good balance to sometimes be overly patriarchal, like Aries experience. I mean, mm-hmm. there's both genders or um, like polarities involved in like every part of the zodiac and the chart. So um, yeah, I appreciate that nuance. And well, just the fact that myths are, are flexible. They're not like carved into so- stone, even though sometimes they are. <laughs> um, but <laughs> like we can... Yeah be sort of co-creative to and reimagine myths. Um, I believe in that podcast that I referenced, um, they discussed uh, different versions and um, that, that were kind of gleaned from uh, artworks um, mm-hmm. versus uh, versions that have just have been like carried down through the telling. And, and that was influential too, because it just tells that we can rewrite our stories a little bit. We're not necessarily um, tied to one specific version of a myth, even if that myth is being brought in um, to our lives very strongly. Um, so like part of something that's kind of on my slate is to really dig deeply into that um, Jason the Golden Fleece myth and Medea and kind of seeing uh, where I'm embodying the most problematic parts of that myth and really mm-hmm. being kind of, again, raw with that. Yeah. Um, uh, but also exploring what better versions that could be, kind of alternate endings and mm. uh, re-envisionings and um, seeing what other cultures uh, bring to that sort of mythological cluster. Um, mm. uh, definitely something um, I haven't done a lot with yet, but I'm really excited about. And yeah. uh, I really love like mythological works. Yeah. Um, I've brought in a lot of like fixed stars kind of early on into my mm-hmm. astrological ex- exploration. Um, and I have a lot of connections as well with the star Hamal, uh, which mm-hmm. is in the constellation of Aries. Um, so it's just kind of that much more um, insistent <laughs> that I really kind of delve deeply into that myth. Yeah. And I think that that's like one of the reasons I wanted to bring myth into this podcast is because of my experience watching Jason uh, Jason Holly's lectures and then later on like going on to actually I took a class with Jason Holly on the earth signs where we uh, explored myth in relation to each of the earth signs and you've mentioned or you've alluded to like this Capricorn stellium that you have I also have a Capricorn stellium in my second house and yeah that I think the power of myth um, is really being able to kind of move into these stories in like an embodied way or what Jason might call kind of like living the dream, like kind of like living a waking dream almost, like playing with that dream. And I think that that provides so much space to really getting emotional, just thinking about it, just thinking about my experiences of doing this, but to really move into those spaces astrologically, to move into those, to, you know, try to embody those beings um, so that you can create a little bit more space in the way that you're talking about, you know, how have I embodied this in the past? Where can I go? You know, like, what is the space um, to go? And I think that that's, you know, the, the interesting question of astrology that I'm always interested in is like, what is fated and what is free will? Like, what can't I change and what can I change? And um, I found like through this mythical work, um, through playing with these stories and reimagining these stories, it really does create a lot of space to 
um, work with significations we have in our birth charts and find space and find meaning and find, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's so <laughs> much know. there. Yeah, I thought of so many things uh, when you're describing all those, and I completely agree <laughs> uh, with what you're saying about like the, the meaning making with the chart and kind of exploring fatedness and free will. I'm kind of, I kind of see it as bring back what little white head that I have. I kind of see it as the, the world is sort of made of stories. And uh, in the sense of we have the sort of eternal stories, or one could say that the stories in spirit, which are like the myths and the archetypes. Uh, and then we have our lived experience, which is like the specific, uh, instantiations of those stories and like each one is unique each moment and experience in life um, uh, however each each one does bring in specific stories and and myths and, and we're, we're sort of embodying those and those are represented within the chart um, and they i would say they could be expressed in many different ways mm -hmm. um, kind of like bringing in that term from um, tarnas uh, Richard Tarnas of archetypically multivalent right. uh, as a way of looking at the chart, which I, I like. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, for sure. So if we're looking at that in, in that way, um, I also like to bring in, it comes from Druidry, my specific like studies with that uh, coming from uh, more so like John Michael Greer, uh, okay. who shares a lot about like the revival Druid tradition, uh, which started back in the uh, primarily the 1800s. Um, but in that tradition, there's an idea of um, like a threefold kind of uh, view of like fate and destiny, where mm -hmm. fate is sort of um, similar to how we might think about karma, although mm -hmm. again, that's a complicated like concept that right. is summarized differently a lot of times, like in English versus like its source languages and cultures. Um, however, just the idea of there's a kind of a momentum from like past events, uh, whether in previous lifetimes or within one lifetime, um, and that could be considered fate, that sort of pushing momentum like from the back. <laughs> and then on the other side, destiny is a word often sort of mixed with fate. Um, mm -hmm. But in this specific view, I kind of see it as um that which pulls us to a specific kind of direction in the future, quote unquote, mm -hmm. <laughs> where it's almost like the the lure. It, mm. In Whitehead's philosophy, it kind of sees the divine or God as like a creative pull towards um, like a bettering or or like a more creative, a co-creative um, being in the world. Mm -hmm. um, or almost like um, the divine brings a specific telos or not even end goal, but just sort of a pull in a certain direction. And that pull, um, either from God or the higher self or however um, someone wants to kind of think about that, um, could be termed destiny and then or uh, corresponding with the future. So the fate corresponds with the past, destiny with the future. And then mm -hmm. in the middle, we have the present moment that kind of Aries in the moment <laughs> feeling. Um, and what's uh, corresponded with that is the concept of will or choice. Um, uh, will as in 
um, deciding what we're <laughs> going to be doing, I guess. Right. Uh, like the will, will has a lot built into it, but mm -hmm. uh, but I, I recommend people to explore that as like a philosophical notion. Yeah. Uh, and then the idea is if any two or three of those line up, a destiny, fate, and will, um, the then the the person or soul or uh, whatnot is drawn like inexorably in a certain direction. Like when we feel sort of swept away uh, in a sequence of events, um, a lot of times I would attribute that to like an alignment between fate and destiny or fate and will or mm -hmm. fate and uh, or will and destiny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love this uh, discussion that you're bringing forward because um, Chris Brennan and Adam Ellenboss recently talk about like fate and astrology in a recent astrology podcast episode. And I feel like this goes really well um, with, I mean, I was listening to it yesterday, so it's very fresh on my mind. Um, so I feel like it's, yeah, it's very interesting, the differentiation between these different concepts and, and how they play in. So yeah, thank you for, for bringing that forward. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the relationship of your moon to your sun. You know, you already talked about kind of this hot moon in Aries, um, but we can add even a little bit more nuance to that with uh, the lunar phase because you have a waxing gibbous moon, correct? Correct, yep. Yeah, so can you talk a little bit about that and how that plays into your experience of your moon? Yeah, so um, waxing gibbous moon... Uh, also high in the sky, uh, in the, the night side of the chart. So the moon is sort of rejoicing by hemisphere. And yeah, I've always been sort of fascinated by the gibbous phase and even just the word gibbous. Um, uh, and when I was, uh, I was into Lovecraft for a while. H.P. Lovecraft okay. is an author and uh, one of, he, he, has, he is very wordy and <laughs> an interesting writer. Problematic also, I just want to note, <laughs> note that. Mm -hmm. um, and no one uh, uh, had issues with race and, and whatnot. Uh, yeah. uh, but he, he has contributed a lot to literature. Um, uh, gibbous is one of the words that he uses. And uh, when he notes the moon, um, at least several times in his writing, he mentions the moon being in that gibbous phase, which I always question. I'm like, Why isn't full moon like a mysterious phase or even the mm. new moon where it's dark? Um, right. Just to be clear, the, the gibbous phase, the waxing gibbous phase is like that moment before the full moon. Right. Like, so the yeah. moon is very full, but you can tell that it's not fully round. It's kind mm. of, um, I don't even know what you call that shape besides gibbous. It's like a, a circle with a, like a slice the, taken out of one side. Oblong, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so it, learning more about the astrological significations of the gib waxing gibbous phase in particular sort of making a lot more sense um, why Lovecraft would have used that. Um, I don't know if he realized it, um, but uh, it has this feeling of being on the edge of something important or like having this anticipatory uh, feeling of like something's about to happen or like you're on the edge of, of the void mm -hmm. um, or even like an anxiety of like, uh, like there's the bad side too, or the more negative um, experience side where it's, uh, uh, dread or like feeling that something bad might be coming mm. uh, as someone with that natal phase uh, like that whole family of feelings is very familiar it's kind of like a um, automatic sort of set where I, I feel like something is about to happen either good or bad or neutral or, mm. or whatnot and, mm. and that's definitely my default 
Um, and so like tying back into like that sort of supernatural horror fiction, uh, it makes a lot of sense that so that would be the phase um, like a lot of Lovecraft's work is anticipate, anticipating or fearing the unknown or the mm. abyss or or not knowing uh, and that not knowing itself being fearful um, or that feeling of like standing on a precipice um, so yeah for sure that's like been my experience of that phase. Interesting and yeah just to talk a little bit about the temperament or its elementality. I think uh, it's either, I can never get it right, it's either Ptolemy or Porphyry who talk about the moon at that phase as like being in summer. There's this kind of seasonal relation. And so it's like, again, that idea of like right before the full bloom of the full moon, the fulfillment that's there. Uh, I think temperamentally, it's the hot and wet phase. I don't know if that's correct. I, I believe it's the hot and wet phase. I think the first quarter is hot and dry and then hot and wet and then cold and wet and cold and dry. Hey all, this is SP hopping in with a bit of a correction on this section. Uh, so I just wanted to read a very short, brief section from Demetra George's Ancient Astrology and Theory and Practice, Volume 1. This is from page 333 on the lunar phases. It says, Ptolemy explains how the moon is more productive of moisture in its waxing from new moon to first quarter, of heat in its passage from first quarter to full, of dryness from full to last quarter, and of cold from last quarter to occultation, which is the new moon. Porphyry relates how the moon's first appearance until the first quarter is like spring, and thence to the full moon like summer, and from there to the second quarter like autumn, and next down to its disappearance at the new moon like winter i have a balsamic moon so i'm pretty i'm pretty sure that but it, it just adds this uh you know and i think hot and wet because uh the if i remember correctly those are the benefic qualities those are the qualities that are uh kind of life affirming rather than malefic which is like not conducive to life or the growth of life and so again there's this other idea of you know it's kind of like I don't know how humid it is in Indiana, but where I grew up in New York, summer is very hot and wet, it's humid, um, and things are growing. Things are in full bloom in that time. And so I feel like that kind of adds a little bit to it as well. I don't know if any of that is resonant. Um, yeah, it's about. interesting you say that. Um, I don't know if I'm learning like a slightly different side of the tradition or I'm just misremembering. Uh, I tended to associate the quarter from first quarter to the full moon with the hot and dry, um, whereas spring, the spring sort of quarter is um, uh, hot and wet. Uh, okay. Although what you're saying is true of like my experience of the weather in my region here in southern mm. Indiana is definitely hot and extremely wet. <laughs> I also want to say I haven't looked at that in Demetrius' first book in a while, and I could just totally be wrong. That's very much a possibility. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's interesting, too, because um, I've become a little more flexible in my wrongness sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, like, uh, sometimes when I'm wrong or have, like, a, a fact that's not fully correct, my exploration of that has been still very nourishing or um, uh, influential. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, whether or not that quarter is hot and wet, I would want to know that specifically <laughs> however mm -hmm. um what you're saying is uh like of my summers here they are quite um 
hot and wet. So on some level, I think that is going to have an influence of my experience of these archetypes, whether or not right. like the traditional Hellenistic is hot and dry or not. So um, uh, yeah, I think it's good that we kind of brought both of those versions in. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, I mean, summer can be dry, um, but I do live in a humid region, uh, and I have associated like that hot and and wet sort of humid weather with that sort of um, airy kind of headachey <laughs> feeling. Hey y'all, SB here again. Just jumping in with one more note on this. I reached out to friends on Twitter to find textual references to temperament in the quarters and. Uh, I want to thank Amy Green for responding uh, with a image from Abu Mashar's Greater Introduction. Uh, so the quarter following the new moon, the new moon is when the sun and the moon are conjunct. That is a hot and wet quarter. The quarter from leading up to the full moon is hot and dry. The quarter after the full moon is cold and dry. And the last quarter before the new moon is cold and wet. And, and yeah, so like calculating either way, when I did the calculations uh, for temperament, and I did several, just uh, because there's so many <laughs> kinds, right. I always come up as like choleric first, uh, and then uh, phlegmatic as like a distant second. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, for sure, like overall, my experience has been that kind of fiery, choleric uh, experience. And just to be clear, because I'm not super familiar with the temperamental terms choleric is like that kind of hot dry and phlegmatic is the hot wet kind of thing oh yeah choleric is hot dry and phlegmatic is cold wet ah okay okay so, yeah, but the sense. for me the choleric is definitely first and foremost mm, okay yeah that makes a ton of sense speaking of cold and wet your mars placement your your mars is in the water sign of scorpio um so I was hoping if you, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, this very dignified Mars um, and how that affects, yeah, how your how your moon kind of plays out. Sure. Um, yeah, I love my Mars placement. Uh, I have Mars and Scorpio um, at the three degrees Scorpio, and I can sort of rattle off the dignities. Uh, it's in its own bound, its own uh, triplicity. It's the primary triplicity lord mm -hmm. of water at night. Uh, it's in its uh, own domicile, of course, uh, and its own decan as well. And so I, I don't use the medieval numbering system, but just for this, I, I did it, uh, and I, I believe it came up to plus 11 <laughs> Scorpio. It's like uh, Super so, Mars. Yeah, Super Mars. So, so I love that. I mean, I also have the sun in Scorpio, um, and I believe there's just like the edge of being under the beams. Uh, like yeah, it's like 14 so... degrees away. So interesting because I only recently re learned reading one of Ben Dyke's uh, translations of Abu Mashar that there's a different, uh, like under the beams. I thought it was just 15 because that's the kind of, I think the moiety we call it of the sun. But for Mars, there's a different uh, kind of like range of when Mars is under the beams. And it's 18, I believe he says. Uh, just really interesting to hear that. Um, and also for like planets being under the beams, it's different for each planet given their nature, like it's better or worse. And uh, if I understand for Mars, it's like, it's not as bad for Mars because the nature of Mars and the nature of the sun are similar. Uh, for sure. And uh, 
and also there's the, the idea of like being in chariot uh so like a planet in, mm. in its own domicile or i believe some authors even say within its own bound uh kind of displaces a, a lot of the the difficulties of being uh, under the beams or combust um and so uh yeah my mars feels comfortable uh <laughs> there yeah so it's uh so i have mars with the sun and then mercury kazemi also in scorpio um so like uh eight twelfths of my chart are ruled by mars ultimately mm -hmm. um, and again it has that uh kind of um aversion but um like and girded and girded relationship uh with the moon uh, mm -hmm. which i've always thought is quite interesting um just having that kind of alignment between the two signs even without the connection um and then at the same time i have like jupiter and then venus and saturn uh kind of translating for mars uh mm. kind of relaying uh the information uh so there is a connection it's just a little more indirect uh, yeah needing to be maybe activated versus it just naturally flowing is kind of mm. how it feels sometimes yeah and how do you think that mars kind of in this inward uh downward sign of scorpio um ruling the fifth house of creativity ruling the tenth house you know, a very different kind of sign, very Aries that, that kind of fire up and out. Um, how do you think that that affects how the moon manifests given given the nature of Mars, where, where it's placed in your chart? Yeah, I mean, it feels almost like a, feels almost like a pressure cooker kind of situation where uh, you have that a lot, a lot of intense internal energy mm. um, with the Scorpionic Mars. And then if there's not like an outlet up at the top, I guess, so to speak, with the moon in Aries at the top of the chart, um, like I said before, with like physical exertion or um, like how I'm doing now with trying to be more in the public, having mm -hmm. like a personal brand. Um, I feel like when I'm, I'm doing those things, um, my whole chart, my whole life experience flows a lot better mm -hmm. uh, versus cool. when I kind of have my moon sort of, can I almost feel like, turned off at times when I'm being more recluse or mm. uh, not doing as much physical activity, uh, then I feel like uh, a little cut off from experience where um, things feel uh, kind of uncomfortable or um, almost like uh, a, a not rightness <laughs> in my mm. experience. Um, so I feel like I have that need to connect with the moon um, and and like my lunar activities of being like doing tenth house things uh, or or uh, lunar bodily things uh, mm -hmm. to get my whole chart to flow. Otherwise, I have um, issues, uh, interpersonal relationship issues, kind of crop up. Um, I, I'm sort of uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in chart all the time, of course. But mm -hmm. um, just from that flow from Scorpio to Aries, yeah, it just feels like I need to consciously make those outlets happen uh, otherwise uh, there's going to be like a build-up or i can uh, too much of the intensification internally and then that kind of, kind of erupting and causing problems uh, that's kind of how it feels at least yeah yeah totally that makes sense and you know you talked about like the planets in the seventh house transferring the light of mars in the fifth to the moon in the tenth and i'm curious like if you could speak to how that plays out maybe at all in your life like how do 
you know, the seventh house can be romantic partnerships, but it can also be business partnerships. There's a, that open enemies signification as well. Um, but like, yeah, how, how does that transfer? Do you think, how do you see that in your life? I find that for me, the fifth house does kind of have significations of creativity. Um, mm-hmm. and I know that's a little more on the modern end of things, um, but yeah. it does feel right. Like the, the procreation is a, an act of creation, kind of a mm-hmm. primordial act of creation. And that um, I feel like does translate well to like creative and artistic projects. Yeah. Um, also, I did want to note that uh, a little a little side dignity maybe is that Manilius had an alternative arrangement of the joys of the planets in the houses mm. and his, he had Mars rejoicing in the fifth and oh, there was this great article that um, I forget the name of but maybe I can send that over yeah maybe, please do um, where um, an author kind of goes through that I believe it's Chloe Margarita I'll send that over and, okay cool uh, yeah talking about that and how that I know Manilius can be a little more of a poetic a little less maybe directly reliable for techniques um, mm. but uh, that, that exploration of the joy of Mars in the fifth really felt um, apropos and then that being sort of translated through the seventh house all of the topics translated through the seventh house to the tenth uh, I feel like I, I'm best active in the public sphere when I have or I'm like engaging the support of like my partner or mm-hmm. um the, like the people with whom I have close one-on-one relationships. Yeah. Um, if I kind of like bo- try to bypass that, I feel like that creates like tensions in my life. Mm. Um, and yes, yeah, so, I mean, I have my moon in Aries and there is that kind of like fierce independence and like wanting to sort of work um, alone at times. Yeah. Um, but when I uh, kind of lean too much into that and don't um, take the support of others, uh, things don't tend to work out as well. Right. Uh, and like there is a discomfort there um you have saturn who's out of sex malefic uh, in and ruling capricorn um mm-hmm. on my seventh uh and so like that doesn't feel great sometimes it can feel right. like super limiting uh, sometimes i just want to like break free and like do my own thing mm-hmm. uh, but when i kind of reel it in and or like subject myself and allow myself to experience those discomforts of like sometimes hearing things that I don't want to hear or like, mm. you know, some criticisms that can feel harsh, but are ultimately quite constructive. Yeah. Um, I mean, like Saturn is in Capricorn. So uh, it, it, it can be helpful. It, it's uh, because it has its, it's has its resources and can do what it wants to do. Sometimes that's to my benefit and sometimes not. Right. Um, but me working with that energy, then I feel like I can unlock, that Venusian assistance, mm-hmm. um, Venus being pretty happy in her own triplicity of Earth at night, in that sense at least. I mean, she's also like, applying to Saturn, which is right. uncomfortable in its own way. But mm-hmm. uh, I feel like the Moon can get that sort of helpful, um, sort of physical embodied, um, being an Earth sign, um, Venusian assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I kind of have to engage that sextile from Scorpio yeah. to Capricorn, that sextile of the, the energy that maybe can flow if activated, but maybe doesn't necessarily naturally flow like a trine does. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I engage that, um, then I feel like that square from Capricorn to Aries functions a lot better and with less of that like discomfort, even though Mar, like even though a square is like of the nature of Mars. So yeah. like um, 
like conflict and um, like uh, barriers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like that flow uh, from the fifth to the seventh to the tenth was really important for my like life experience mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Cool. Thank you for explaining. That's so interesting. So interesting to see and hear how these things play out in people's lives because it you can see it in the chart and then hearing you explain it makes so much sense. All right. So have you have you tracked the cycles of the moon in relation to your own emotional life? And if so, what, what have you found? So what happens when the transiting moon is changing signs? How does it make you feel? What, what happens when the moon is in cancer and is in your first house? Is it is it like wonderful experience for you? I wouldn't know. It's in it's my eighth house. It's tell me about it. I feel like I do notice, um, I'll just list, I'll kind of rattle off the things I notice the most, excuse me, is my lunar phase returns. So mm. like around the time of the gibbous moon, I like that feeling. I like that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I've heard other people say that too, is when they uh, kind of, the moon returns to that natal uh, phase is like a time that feels most comfortable or um, uh, whatnot. Um, so that for sure. And then uh, the three kind of signs that I sort of notice kind of pop out the most, uh, depending on other configurations, of course, is the moon returning to Aries, and then uh, and then Scorpio, and then Cancer as well. Mm. And then the, the exact feeling of that, I feel like varies a lot, just depending on what, what other planets the moon is con- connecting to at that time. Mm-hmm. And probably also like personal um, timing, things that are going on. But I do notice that like, Scorpio, Aries, and Cancer, and that's my Sun, Moon, and Rising as well. Right, um, but they're also very active houses for me as well. I just notice there are times of like high noticeable energy. Um, sometimes it's uh, difficulties or like arguments or mm. strains, and sometimes it's like just high vitality uh, or even like erotic energy, um, mm. more so than usual. Just kind of depending, and so those for sure. And then something else I just wanted to throw in and um, shout out to Ali Alomi. I know we both love his work. Yep. Um, he uh, shared translations um, of the Lunar Mansion um, uh, delineations and prescriptions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the translation he had for mine, which is the first Lunar Mansion. Uh, so like, again, the most airy is very, uh, mm-hmm. the first, uh, that's uh, Al-Sharatain or Asharatain, a little more Arabic, uh, also known as El Nak. One, the translation is not super, it's one of the more challenging <laughs> mansions uh, mm. for sure. Um, and uh, I have tried the um, like the herbal uh, recommendation for that. Um, of course, this is not like a medical recommendation for anyone else. But something right. I've tried based on ancient text is uh, black seeds. Um, so it's uh, like a Middle Eastern spice that's used for different things and I just have the whole seeds that I chew on sometimes if I remember when the moon returns and I had some uh right before this just to you know the moon's in Sagittarius but uh, just to kind of remind myself and what's interesting about the experience of that is one the black seeds are supposed to like dampen the negative influence of the sign mm-hmm. which um I'm sorry of the mansion which can be uh you know some of the same things we talked about with Aries just uh, like discomfort or even um, negative sort of um, psychological uh, considerations. So the seeds are supposed to help with that. Um, and I find when I eat them, there's actually like a burning in the back of my throat that kind of lingers. Mm-hmm. Um, and at first I didn't like that. 
I still don't love it, but it's an interesting reminder that kind of keeps me in my body, mm. like that, like little tingle or little burning. Um, it's like it, it doesn't hurt. It just brings me back to the moment, mm. and when I'm focusing on that, it allows me to be a little more intentional with uh, like the choices I'm making or how I'm responding to the moment. Um, which I think is a good kind of remediation uh, for like that Aries energy where there can be a tendency to kind of be sucked into the moment and just act <laughs> right um, or, or react a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that the benefit of the black seed is just that. However, just that sort of experiential uh, quality to it really adheres to the fact uh, that it is a remediation for mm-hmm. that placement, which I love. So I just wanted to bring up that. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I love that. I Sometimes the, um, the remediations that are suggested, it's like stuff I don't even know what it is. Um, I remember looking to, into that when we did our trade and I was like, oh, I know what black seeds are because I use black seed oil as well. And it's so interesting to hear your experience because I don't know if I've heard other people who have like taken the suggestions and how that's landed but i feel like that's a, a really interesting example of that wonderful yeah, that's thing i also just recommend yeah i because you know i love making recommendations <laughs> like my uh-huh. jupiter in the first house it's just yeah. what it is, uh, is to try things like that and, and allow the experience to speak for itself mm-hmm. it's something that's taken me many years to be more comfortable with uh, mm-hmm. but sometimes uh in just sort of like having the experience and like seeing what that feels like and what that could mean on like a very personal level uh it might be that no one else has ever really shared about that but it's still very legitimate and then uh, if you share that experience with others that kind of adds to our like database of like oh wow yeah this is mm-hmm. connected to this and bringing in more significations and, and whatnot yeah where people even knowing there is a lunar mansion there are suggestions for potential remediations with the lunar mansions. Yeah, absolutely. Thank yeah. you for that suggestion. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in terms of the moon and your spiritual practice? I know we touched on that a little bit. Yeah, I would just, um, again, bring up the like daily planetary prayers again, just as a great practice for anyone. It, mm-hmm. it, it really brought me into the cycle of like a sevenfold cycle of um, the days um, and of course like you can go even deeper into the planetary hours and explore that um, mm-hmm. but just having that check-in once a week with each of the planets um, and even then like around the time of the prayer thinking of uh, where the planet is uh, what aspects it's making to your natal mm-hmm. chart and so on and so forth um, is a really good way of like grounding into the present astrology mm-hmm. uh, and then connecting uh with the energies that much more and there's a lot like if you just search planetary prayers you can find some great ones the orphic hymns are a great one to use and if you uh check out christopher warnock's website uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, renaissance astrology yeah um, he has a few different options for prayers that, that he recommends and he, he goes a little further into what the practice can entail but yeah that's i definitely recommend that and that's kind of my my most specific practice associated with the moon is my monday (laughs) prayer wonderful for sure yeah i've been trying to institute that for a while and i'm hopefully gonna try to use this conversation as a springboard to 
get into doing daily um, planetary prayer where I light a candle and read an Orphic hymn. I feel like I want to start with that because that's pretty feels pretty doable and just kind of get in the habit of doing it every day because I know from my past experience that that's like daily practice is really important for me. So I'm going to try and take that suggestion. And I just wanted to give a shout out again uh, on the introductory episode of this podcast. I read Sarah Mastros's uh, translation of the Orvik Hymn to Selene and I'm looking at her book uh, on our altar uh, right now. And uh, so I just wanted to give a shout out to, to that. She just came out with a new translation uh, or a new edition of that rather. And I'll link that again in the show notes so that people can people can uh, purchase that if they'd like. Um, do you have any other suggestions that you want to offer to someone maybe new to astrology or a planetary relationship in forming or initiating a relationship with the moon? Yeah, I would um, suggest the, the practice of journaling. Because mm. um, the, the moon is very kind of internal, uh, reflective, um, mm. like mem- connected to memory. And I find that journaling even more so than just sort of thinking about placements it, it, it when you kind of bring pen to paper or um, like type uh, do something these kind of I guess physical um, embodied actions uh, and start like exploring a placement or uh, if we're talking specifically the moon uh, like where the moon is currently uh, what sign the moon is in uh, what phase the moon is in uh or even uh, like other considerations like secondary progressed moon placement and so on um exploring those through journaling and even uh, asking yourself like what do i know about this placement of the moon Mm -hmm. what's the the dignity and condition of the moon um what what might this mean for me and looking at my chart and kind of letting it play out and, and writing whatever comes out um uh, for me, that's been a really great practice where it's mm-hmm. sometimes things that are really that seem obvious or simple can start like unfolding in a way where it's like, wow, I didn't even know that I knew that or that mm. um, uh, I didn't make that connection from just sort of like looking at my chart and sort of just thinking. Uh, and yeah, so definitely try journaling. <laughs> awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tony. Is there anything else you want to add or do you have any imparting thoughts about the moon that you'd like to share? I think we kind of touched on a lot of the main things I wanted to mention. Uh, just that the moon is awesome. Oh, actually, there was one thing that I didn't uh, uh, remember to bring in is a, a little practice that someone wants to try. I, I got this one uh, also from author uh, John Michael Greer. Is uh, it comes from the some sometime in ancient Greece uh, in the classical uh, tradition uh, of greeting uh, the celestial bodies so like mm. the first time within like a waking period that you see uh the moon or or even the sun or the fixed stars that you kind of have a relationship with uh, is uh to uh, kiss your palm and then turn the palm to uh to face the the body as just like a silent greeting of respect mm. to the planet or body uh that uh, i really like doing that <laughs> Cool. That's super cool. Awesome. All right, Tony, where can we find you? And is there anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with us? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of uh, doing a lot right now. Jupiter is uh, transiting through my Aries house, so uh, probably doing too much at once. Mm. Um, 
but I have a website, uh, starrywoodsastro.com, uh, where I'm uh, doing kind of a blog, uh, where I'm talking about uh, all about like learning astrology, tips and tricks and techniques for kind of learning astrology in like a deeper way or um, practices and ideas that can help with the learning process um, that like anyone can use, whether they're taking courses or just self-studying on their own. Um, the learning process itself uh, can be an interesting uh, realm to explore. Um, and then uh, similarly on YouTube and Patreon, uh, both of which are under uh, Tony of the Woods, all okay. one word, uh, where I'm uh, kind of experimenting with podcasting and videos of uh, kind of exploring the same topics of learning and interviewing uh, different astrologers and student astrologers uh, about their uh, like learning process and learning journey and tips and ideas that they have um, from their experience, which has been fun. We're at episode mm-hmm. two as of now. <laughs> yeah, I listened to that first episode with our uh, our mutual friend Robobo and really enjoyed it. So I definitely suggest people listen to that. And I'll definitely link all those things in the show notes for sure. Oh, thank you. And yeah, my approach has been very kind of Aryan, I guess. Uh, which I don't like that adjective, but it's the one yeah. that I have for her. Not, not the best. <laughs> um, but uh, I kind of am uh, putting a lot out quickly and then adjusting. So um, I hope to kind of evolve my blog and, and podcast and refine over time. And so hopefully uh, uh, listeners will enjoy that kind of growth and experience mm-hmm. as well. And then finally, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Tony of the Woods, where I share similar things on learning and some goofy things as well and mm-hmm. try to have fun with other astrologers so definitely follow me and i'll uh, probably follow you back as well and interacting wonderful awesome thank you so much Tony, for coming on and talking about your experience i i really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me i had a, had a great time To support the show by donating or becoming a member, please visit my website, which is linked in the show notes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you listen. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. See those links in the show notes as well. If you have any questions or feedback on the show, please feel free to contact me via my website or email me at sphallhorary at gmail.com. In the show notes, you can also find links to astrologers and resources that we touched on in this episode. Thanks. See you next time.